Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Our text today is Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes." So that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, take it and use it today to mold us and to shape us. Lord, to transform us and to conform us to the very image of the Son of glory. Father, that we would be your people, your church in the earth, to give a glorious witness to Christ, that we would be salt and light, Lord, to make a difference during our time of visitation here, to prepare the way for the generations coming after us, that your name would be known the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, even as the waters cover the sea. Father, we thank you for your grace that has chosen us to use us for such glorious things. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as we go through our text today, Malachi chapter 3, verses uh, 6 through 12, I want to summarize what's presented here in these six verses, but I also want to point out that we are dealing with many of the same issues in our own day within the church. It's one of the reasons I chose to go through the book of Malachi um, starting the first of the year. It is so relevant, as all of Scripture is, but it is so relevant for the day and the time that we're living in in so many ways. God is not waiting for the world to repent. I hope you realize that. God is waiting for his church, his people who are called by his name, to repent. That is when we will see healing come to our land. God, through the prophet Malachi, is addressing his people. Malachi is calling out the sins of the people and with the indictment of their sin, God is calling them to return to him. And with their return, with their return to God, the Lord promises his blessing will also return. As we consider these words of God delivered through the prophet Malachi 400 years before the birth of Christ, 
we see that the church today is dealing with many of the same issues, many of the same sins. Those sins of the church, the sin of going astray from God in his word, must be addressed today just as they had to be addressed in Malachi's day. And if they are not addressed today, then we can expect the same type of judgment to fall on us as fell on them. The only reason we are not consumed today is because of his unchanging grace and long-suffering mercy. We cannot think for one moment that God is any less holy or any less just. He hates sin as much today as ever, and he will only tolerate it in his people for so long before he brings the necessary and loving correction that his unchanging character demands. And when I talk about God tolerating sin, we sin every day. We are sinful beings. It is God's grace. That is why we are not consumed. But you walking every day and knowing that you are a sinner in need of God's grace is one thing. And you living in open rebellion against God every day, refusing to acknowledge your sin, refusing to deal with your sin, is another thing. God will, in his love and in his grace, bring the necessary correction. This is what his unchanging character demands. For he is the Lord and he does not change. Amen? In verse 6, God declares his unchanging nature and character and his unfailing faithfulness to his covenant. Because of his steadfast faithfulness to the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, he declares to the people of Judah in Malachi's day, Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. In calling them sons of Jacob, God is reminding them that it is not their faithfulness but his faithfulness that is keeping them from being consumed. And the same is true for us today. Remember, the people of Judah had accused God of delighting in those who do evil. They asked this question, where is the God of justice? In our day within the church, we have professing Christians, both leaders and laity, who do not believe the word of God is the inspired word by an unchanging God, These professing Christians practice lifestyles on the assumption that God has indeed changed and that his word no longer applies today as it once did. These are false and dangerous assumptions and we would be in our own sin if we failed to address these things. The flawed reasoning behind those assumptions is that we as a people have spiritually Evolved, at least that's what the skeptics say. That's what teachers in the body of Christ say today. Those skeptics believe God has evolved with us and does not reckon sin today the same way it was once reckoned by such spiritually primitive people, people like Moses, who actually wrote that homosexuality was a sin, but of course, Moses in his unevolved state of spirituality, just didn't know any better. We, of course, today know better than God. You can go out there and find 
these teachings. They're in the public. They're prolific, unfortunately. And unfortunately, people believe it because it tickles their ears and it justifies their sin. A people so primitive that they actually believed God's word. If only we were so primitive today, right? We must return to such basic simplicity of believing God's word and trusting in the gospel of Christ as the only power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We must not be afraid to preach such simple and powerful truth. In verse 7, God contrasts his unchanging nature with the ever-changing whims of sinful man. God has not moved, but the people, on the other hand, from the days of their fathers have moved away from God and his law. The reference to the days of your fathers in verse 7 refers to the days that brought the very judgment of God that caused the captivity of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem in the beloved temple. It was their fathers who rejected the word of the Lord from the mouths of the prophets. Yet even in the midst of such rejection, God promises, return to me and I will return to you. In their rebellion, they turned away from the Lord, but God is calling them to return to him so that he may return his blessing to them. Instead of accepting his graceful offer and acknowledging their sin and seeking the Lord, they deflected from their sin by questioning God. And here was their question. In what way shall we return? In other words, I didn't know we had departed. Their denial of sin and their hardness of heart is shown in this questioning of God. God calls to his wayward people, return to me and I will return to you. God used the prophet Malachi and so many other prophets to call his people to repent and return to him. And as they moved away from God and his ordinances, they moved away from his blessing. No longer under his blessing, they suffered the promised consequence of going away from God to pursue their own sin. We clearly see how we as a people, as his church, have gone away from his ordinances and have not kept them. We literally live in a culture today that celebrates evil, even death. We live in a culture that calls evil good and good evil. We literally have churches that profess to worship the God of the Bible Yet they bless the practice of murdering babies and they bless the very facilities where those murders are carried out. And that's only one example. We've gone so far away from God in his word that gender has become a point of confusion and contention in our culture and even within the church. Our culture and even the church no longer affirm or recognize the physical, biological differences between a man and a woman. We have codified and blessed the right of men and women to decide for themselves, I should say even children, boys and girls, to decide for themselves their gender and other identities. 
And the point of all of this is to destroy the image and authority of God over his creation and his created order. This is not just a bunch of wackos out there who've lost their minds. This is a spiritual battle that we are involved in. These are spirits. This is a spiritual warfare that we are seeing waged throughout our culture, throughout the world, against God and his people to destroy the very image and authority of God over his creation and his created order. This is sinful man declaring that he is now his own creator, his own master, the master of his own destiny. Man in all of his self-exalting vainglory believes he is reigning supreme over his choices, even those that contradict the very creator and the created order. Because there is no acknowledgement of a creator or a created order. Otherwise, we could not, you couldn't justify the things that are being done today. It's, it's hard to believe that you can even make up the things that are being done today. But we don't have to make them up. They're, they're reality. This, of course, is complete folly. And it will end terribly for all who join in this and approve of this. And that is why we must preach the gospel. It's why we must live the gospel and not hide our light under a basket because we're afraid of being canceled by our culture. Man tried to be his own God in the very beginning, and we all know how that worked out. God will not be mocked. As a follower of Christ, do not get sucked into the cultural black hole that's trying to draw you in. Be of good cheer in the midst of tribulation. And be of good courage, for Jesus is Lord. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Instead of acknowledging their sin and seeking the Lord, men deflect and ignore their sin. They do this by questioning God, often accusing God of injustice when in fact it is not God, but man who is the source of the problem. Verse 8 begins with a question from God. Will a man rob God? And the implied answer is no, a man will not rob God. But then God levels the accusation concerning their sin. And he says, yet you have robbed me. Again, the people respond by sinfully asking, in what way have we robbed you? Now, the sinfulness of the response from the people is not in asking God a question. It's not that you can't question God. I think we should ask God questions, and we should wrestle with those questions that we have. What we are not to do is use our questioning and our questions as a way to deflect from our own sin and change the subject, thinking somehow that God might, might get lost, you know, and, and follow us down this other trail, and, and he, he doesn't really know about our sin. No, God knows about our sin. He knew about the sin of Judah here that is being pointed out through the prophet. The people ask, in what way have we robbed you? God responds, in tithes and offerings. The people were robbing God in tithes and offerings. 
This sin, like their other sins that we've already covered in the previous chapters, is not a monetary issue. It's an issue of the heart. In fact, it goes to the very heart of our worship of God. The word tithe literally means tenth. So the tithe is 10%. Even among many Christians today, the practice of tithing or giving 10% of their income has become obsolete or simply ignored. The tithe is seen by many as strictly a monetary issue. I have also seen it used as a means to render approval or disapproval in church politics, using it sinfully to leverage and to manipulate. For many, the tithe is seen as something that belongs to man. It's my money. I work for it. That check doesn't have God's name on it. That check doesn't have the church's name on it. That check has my name on it. And I have the right to do with that money. I earn whatever I want. Well, that is the attitude that a lot of people have today. They might not say it like that, but that's really what they believe. And, and we know that's true because of the long-standing numbers that have existed in our culture of people who actually tithe on their income. Well, the tithe doesn't belong to man. The scripture is clear that the tithe belongs to the Lord, Leviticus 27.30. When we fail to include the tithe as part of our worship of God, mentally and practically, we fall into sin as the people of God did in Malachi's day. And we find ourselves robbing God of what is rightfully His. If we believe God is not big enough to bless our obedience in giving back what is His, we are not trusting Him. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Giving the tithe to God often requires us to do just that, walk by faith and not by sight. But God is faithful to perform His word and provide for His children as they trust Him. Therefore, let us not rob God. In verse 9, God declares the people are cursed, saying you are cursed with a curse. Proverbs 26.2 tells us that the curse does not come without cause. The cause of the curse pronounced over Judah was that the whole nation had robbed God. They had robbed God by not bringing all the tithes into the storehouse. In failing to bring in the tithe, the people robbed God of the worship he commands in his word, but also the worship that is commanded by God inherently as the creator and the owner of all things. You realize you own nothing. I own nothing. And it's not owned by Klaus Schwab and his cronies. It's owned by God. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It doesn't matter what any multi-billionaire thinks. God is the creator. He's created all things and he owns all things. They had robbed God by not bringing all the tithes into the storehouse. Our proper worship cannot take place without our proper obedience. By withholding their tithes, the people were withholding from God the honor and the worship due His name. 
There are numerous teachings on tithing, and not a few of them centered around this self-inflicted curse that you incur by when you do not tithe. Uh, I'm not going to go into all this. The problem with most of those teachings, uh, pretty much all of them, is that people are using this point to entice or to motivate or to guilt people into giving with the grandiose promise of, of, of basically winning the lottery. Sadly, this type of theology and this type of teaching uh, in, in this, the point of giving is usually to get something back, something greater in return. Sow bountifully and you will reap bountifully. That is actually a scriptural principle. But the motivation behind the practice of it may not be. It could be more self-centered than God-centered. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Though there is true blessing, the tithe is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Giving to God is not a get-rich-quick scheme. The command concerning the tithe was not a command only concerning the quantity but the quality. As we saw in Malachi 1.8, the people sinned by offering polluted sacrifices to God upon the altar. And when they brought, even though they brought the quantity, I brought the sacrifice, but I didn't bring the quality of sacrifice that God prescribed. They brought offerings they would not give to their own governor, Remember? Yet they offered such polluted sacrifices to God. The law of the tithe did not only concern the right quantity, but the right quality of offering. We can also rob God by offering Him less than our best in our worship. We are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, and that includes all of us, spirit, soul, and body, along with all that we possess. The tithe belongs to the Lord. We give back the tithe to the Lord as an act of worship and honor and thanksgiving for He is the one who has graciously created and blessed us to be partakers on His earth from His bountiful creation. It is to be our love for God and desire to worship and obey Him that is our chief Motive when we tithe and give our offerings to God. The consequence of robbing God is real. Our motivation, though, should not be avoiding a curse. Our motivation should be a faithful heart that loves and obeys the Lord who is worthy of our worship. Give because you love God. And don't worry about your percentage. Actually, in the New Testament, we... Here's the way I think of it. The tithe is the floor. But the reality is, the widow who took, put her last two mites in the treasury, Jesus said she gave everything she had. It wasn't very much quantitatively, but qualitatively, she gave it all to God. And Jesus commended her. And the point is, if we're sitting there counting trying to get by on the least amount we can and still garner God's favor, we need to examine our heart. 
Either we believe He is the Lord of all and the Creator of all and the Provider of all and He is more than able to provide for us and so we can give to Him just as freely as He has given to us. And that is what we are to do in our worship. The tithe can help us in our giving, but it's not a hard and fast rule of our giving. In verse 10, we see God commanding that all the tithes be brought into the storehouse so that there would be food in his house. This was a very practical aspect of this intensely spiritual part of the worship of God. Now, I won't, we could spend a lot of time just teaching on the tithe, and my point today is not really to, to teach about the tithe, but we use the word tithe and we think there was only one tithe. There was just 10% taken. Actually, in Israel, there was more than one tithe. There was what was called the first tithe, which was the tithe of all the land, crops and animals. And then from that first tithe, from the tithe of all the land, there was a tithe taken from the tithe. That first tithe was taken and given to the Levites for the work that they did in the tabernacle and the temple because they weren't allotted land. And so they were to live off of the tithes that God commanded his people to bring to him. Those tithes were then given to the Levites. And then from those tithes given to the Levites, before anything else was done, a tithe was taken from that tithe. And that was given to the priesthood, the sons of Aaron. And that tithe from the tithe was to be the best of the best. Which means that when you gave your tithe to the Lord, you are to give the best of the best, the first fruits, the best fruits. And then those Levites who received it were to take the best of the best and they give a tithe from the tithe to the sons of Aaron for their work in the priesthood. Then there was a second tithe taken after that first tithe. That first tithe was given to the Lord and to his house that there would be meat in it. That second tithe was to be taken and it was to be used by the people. The owner was to take it to Jerusalem each year and he was to eat and drink and be merry. Now, if he lived too far and he couldn't take all that tithe, he was to redeem it and take his money and go to Jerusalem and celebrate and feast. And that happened on the first, the second, the fourth, and the fifth years. And then on the third and the sixth years, that same second tithe was used within the gates of his own city, and the poor were invited, and the poor were blessed with the second tithe to be partakers. It's hard for us to imagine in our minds because we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. And we don't bring our tithe with the, the, the produce of the land and the, and the animals. Every tenth animal that passed under the rod belonged to the Lord. It didn't matter if it was the prized bull or the lame calf. And you couldn't switch out the prized for the poor. That's exactly what the people of Malachi's day were doing. They were keeping the best for themselves and giving God the leftovers. 
The tithe has always belonged to the Lord. It's always been part of our worship of God from very early on. In Genesis 14, we see Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek, the priest of God. It's also recorded in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. In Genesis 28, 20 through 22, we see Jacob promising to give a tithe of all that God gives to him. In Proverbs 3, 9, we're told, Wisdom says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. The tithe didn't begin with the law of Moses. We see at first, the first mention of the tithe was with Abraham. And with his command concerning the tithes, God invited his people to prove him in this, to prove him in bringing all the tithes into the storehouse. And in doing so, God promises to open the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. In the case of Judah, God is promising to pour out the early and the latter rains that would produce a crop that would have of overflowing proportions. So great that they couldn't receive it. In this, God is promising to reverse the curse and pour out his abundant blessing. I believe God's promise remains for us today as we give to him in faith, working by love. If you are giving to simply avoid a curse or to gain a blessing, your motive is wrong. Even though God invites us to prove him in this, if you are giving only to get back in return, your motive is not right. We need to check our hearts. We are not commanded to give so that we will get back in return. The principle of sowing and reaping is real, and we should give in faith, believing that as we so we shall reap, but that must not be our chief motive when we give. We should never use Scripture as a means to manipulate people into giving for any reason, and certainly not for our own benefit. The law governing the tithes indicates it is God who is in control, not us. We do not demand of God, but God does demand faithful obedience from us. And as we obey Him... We are to trust him, for he is faithful. Amen. In verse 11, God promises to rebuke the devourer. God will not only pour out an abundance of rain for an overflowing harvest of blessing, but he promises that the crops of the yield that, that, that are yielded, the, the fruit of the vine, the crops from the field will not be consumed by the devourer. They will not be destroyed by the eater. God promises the people that in their obedience to his word, in their faithfulness to worship him by giving all that is his, they will see a fruitful overflowing harvest from the sowing of it to the reaping of it and ultimately to the partaking of it. Today it is not locusts that we are typically worried about devouring our fruitfulness and our blessing. Figuratively speaking, in our day today, there are even more things to devour the fruit of our labor and the produce of our fields. They are constantly seeking to eat away at the blessings of God that he has so freely given to us. 
as we faithfully give to God what is rightfully His from our time, our talent, and our treasure, we should remember His promise to not only pour out overflowing blessing, but to rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Stand in faith and believe that God will not allow the fruit of your ground to be destroyed, nor your vine to fail to bear fruit. Apply that any way you want to, but believe the promise of God as you faithfully obey Him and trust Him. There is a devourer seeking whom He may devour. Do not fear Him, fear the Lord, and trust in the power of His gospel. We must learn to walk by faith. We have become so conditioned to walk by sight, the world seeks to devour our faith with all of the sights it offers us constantly. The world and the devourer want you to believe that seeing is believing. God tells us to walk by faith, not by what we can see. As we faithfully walk, believing and trusting in God, we will not be moved by those things we may see or may not see because we are rooted and grounded in faith. And what is faith? It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith doesn't speak of things that aren't real. Faith speaks of things that are not yet seen. They are as real as anything you can see or touch or feel or taste. Finally, in verse 12, God tells them that even the nations will call them blessed as a result of their faithful obedience. This will cause them to become a delightful land. Meaning they will be a people in a land yielding the fruitful abundance of God's spiritual blessings as a witness to the nations. And those spiritual blessings also include all of the natural and practical and physical blessings that could possibly go with them. As I have said many times, you can trace the progress of the gospel across history by tracing its progress from Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago across the globe, across time, leaving in its path kingdoms and nations and peoples transformed by its power. What we call the first world today, first world countries are not accidentally first world. They are products of the gospel and its power. And by the gospel, captives were literally set free and transformed in their hearts and minds for the glory of God, thereby transforming those very nations. That very same gospel that was embraced to produce such blessing and prosperity and freedom for what can be called delightful lands is the very same gospel that may be rejected today to see once delightful lands become cesspools of bondage to sin and depravity and death. Could this be what is happening in our very own nation even as we speak? The answer to that question is yet to be seen. But the evidence is disturbing. What will it be? Will the church humble herself and pray and repent? Or will she be drawn away just as Israel and Judah were by the allure of sin and its temporary pleasures and prosperity? Those are questions that each one of us must answer. 
Those are questions the church corporately must answer. If there ever was a time, now is the time to seek the Lord and His grace that He would grant to us repentance. And as we cry out to Him, He would hear from heaven and so heal our land. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the table of the Lord. All who have been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit are welcome to this table. You have been called to worship your God. You have confessed your sin and received the assurance of pardon. You have been consecrated by his word. Now he calls you to commune with him at his table, to eat his bread and drink his wine. Christian, welcome to the table to be renewed and refreshed, empowered to go out and fulfill the commission he has given to each and every one of us. Welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let us stand for our charge. There is a widespread cynicism about giving, specifically tithing, that exists today inside and outside the church. The reasons are various, including mishandling of funds by high-profile leaders and ministries. Those realities, no doubt, contribute to that cynicism. But I'm always reminded that Jesus was so concerned about the finances of his ministry that he allowed a thief to oversee them. I certainly do not advocate having a thief oversee anyone's finances, but the attitude Jesus had toward money helps us keep things in a proper perspective. The tithe belongs to the Lord. In fact, the whole earth and its fullness belong to the Lord, including you and all that you possess. God is the creator of all things, which means he is the owner of all things. And the reality is there is no excuse for cynicism keeping anyone from obeying God and giving back to him what? rightfully belongs to him. You can never get ahead by withholding from God, no matter how much money you have in your bank account. The tithe goes right to the heart of our worship. That is why we see the tithe before, during, and after the law in the context of the worship of God. God commanded the tithe as part of the worship he commands his people. In linking the tithe to our worship, God has linked our hearts to our treasure. If God rules your heart, money cannot. If God is not ruling your heart, you will quickly find out where your treasure is. Just as Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if God is your treasure, your heart will be safely with him. It is the same for the church. It is time for the church to return to true worship, in rejection of idolatry. It is time we stop trying to please men and once again embrace the fear of the Lord. It is time to stop trying to save yourself and it is time to lose yourself as you are crucified with Christ. It is time for the church to stop justifying her sin in the name of nicety and love and actually begin to speak the truth in love no matter the cost. There is no more time. Today may seem too late. 
But today is what you have, and it is where you must begin. Trust God. He is not only a redeemer, he is the God of resurrection. Amen? Amen. Let us sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you.